you've got a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Again, we're continuing in week 3 of our series called American Gods. The whole idea of this series, if you're jumping in with us today, is we're talking about the, and exploring the reality that our nation, for all the talk about the ways our nation is becoming less religious, um, for all the ways we're talking about evangelicalism is, is declining and that people are leaving churches by the droves, our claim, what we're seeing, what we're acknowledging, what we're observing, is that it's not that our nation is actually less religious. We've just exchanged God for a variety of, of other gods, for a variety of other forms of worship. And so we're not worshiping less, we're just worshiping different things. And, and so we want to talk about that over the next few weeks, about what it looks like for Jesus to confront the different gods that maybe even not just outside the church, but in the church that we're choosing and that we're chasing and that we're giving our devotion to. <clears throat> and so the, the hope of this series, uh, one of the things that I, I want to say out front is that we, what we want to do is look at the all-surpassing worth of Jesus, the timeless worth of Jesus, so that what it means to follow him, it doesn't mean that you're uh, following an outdated Messiah. It doesn't believe, uh, you're not believing in some sort of uh, out-of-touch faith. It's not a blind faith. It's not narrow-minded to follow Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't mean that you're winding up on the wrong side of history. That's not what's going on. So in American gods, we're not talking about, hey, all the other gods are actually worth our attention. We're actually saying, no, Jesus is timeless in a way that he topples them down and presents himself all the more relevant, all the more engaging, and all the more sure uh, in our present culture. And so here's what's so beautiful about today. We're going to be talking today about the God, the false God that drives the worship of all other false gods today. And so this service has kind of made me nervous in some ways because uh, what we're talking about today, uh, all the other gods you can think of, all the other things people give themselves to, those things come out of the hub, the center hub of this one God we're going to talk about today. The false God that we're talking about today consistently overpromises with no capacity at all to deliver. The false God we're talking about today is the singular thing in our life that brings the most confusion, the most trouble, and the most sorrow. Today, we're going to pull back the curtain and talk about the God of self, the God of self. So if you've got a Bible, I told you to open to Luke chapter 9. The words will be on the screen behind me. We'll get there in just a little bit. I'm coming out of four different passages today, so I want to read all of them at the beginning, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in from there. So the Word of God says this, Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. John 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then Luke 9, 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever want to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let's pray together. God, I pray that today you would give us help. I pray that today you would give us Holy Spirit insight and understanding to travel against what's normal to us, to go upstream a little bit. God, would you give us new instincts? Would you form in us new reflexes to respond to Jesus? 
God, would you help us to see the ways that we're giving worship that's rightly due to you, to other things? And would you set us free by hearing afresh the call of Jesus to follow him? Jesus, help us this hour. Help us this moment. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I know I'm not saying anything profound, anything you don't already know, um, but we are living in some crazy times historically. The current cultural moment we are in is bizarre. It's wild. There's things swirling about all around us. You know this because the news reminds you of this all the time. Things happening on a global level, things happening on a national level, things happening on a local level. You're reminded of this not just in news sources, but because these are the conversations you're having at the water cooler at work. These are the conversations you're rehearsing over coffee and you're debating over political views, over dinner with extended family. This is the kind of stuff that's happening in our culture that makes family gatherings really difficult to want to attend, right? Because conversations are always going to be spicy. There's always going to be contradictions. And there's always going to be arguments. But just for the sake of being specific this morning, I I want to make some observations of what's happening in our culture. Just a few observations of some rising movements and some rising arguments that that are opposed to one another. But they're happening at the same time. Happening at the same time. Here's here's an example of one. We just had our first African-American president. And he was followed by the election of Donald Trump right? Like that's a massive, massive political swing, like a massive political swing, maybe the the most that I have ever known in our nation's history. Another one, we have a a spike right now of people who are in our country identifying as religious nuns, and that's not the Catholic nuns, that is nuns, meaning no religious affiliation. A number of people are growing as identifying as nuns in our country. At the same time, we're at the height, at the peak of the mega church movement and celebrity pastors, like, do you see the polls, right? Here, here's one more. Right now, we are living in the midst of what's so beautiful and the way people are coming out and not suffering abuse anymore in the Me Too movement. At the same time, though, we're in the midst of the fastest selling and largest distribution of romance novels in the history of our country with Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, this thing is happening at the, at the same time. Like, this, this, these, are, these are completely opposed, completely opposite on different sides of the spectrum. And on and on the list could go of things that are seemingly contradictory, rising up at the same time. We live in a world that's operating in a constant yelling match all the time. People are not talking to one another. People are talking at one another, over one another, or sitting right beside each other with their heads buried in mobile devices, making posts about the people sitting next to them, right? Like, this is the world we're living in. Do you feel these tensions? Like, do you feel this world of constant arguments happening all around you in culture and in politics and different aspects of society? It's a wild and complex place that we're living in. And if you listen carefully, behind the music of all of these arguments, behind the music of all of these movements, if you listen carefully, you'll hear the music of worship to the ancient God of self. These rising arguments, these contradictory movements are all about the common angst inside of every person to define your own reality, create your own sense of standards, to be your own authority. We want to be independent from the opinions of others around us. We want to be no longer limited by uh, social expectations and what's going on and what's socially acceptable. The only thing right now in our current culture that's unacceptable, the only thing that's unacceptable is to refuse to be universally accepting right? That's the only thing that's unacceptable. The highest values of our day, the virtues of our day are authenticity, happiness, and autonomy. 
I'm going to create my own reality. I'm going to define myself. I'm going to do it in a real way. I'm going to do me. You do you. I'll be real. I'll be authentic. I'll be autonomous. And I'm going to be happy. And so we love ourselves. We are absolutely in love with ourselves. We see this from the way that the selfie has taken over Instagram and other social media uh, platforms. We all take 20 selfies in order to find just the right one that casts just the right light on my side profile to get just enough likes and comments on my page, right? I'll take 20 just to find the right one. Everything from that all the way down to the largest and fastest growing uh, industry since the 1970s in the self-help movement, Right? We love ourselves. We're infatuated with ourselves. We're consumed in ourselves. Whether it's self-love or self-hate, we're consumed with ourselves. And so in some way today, to uncover, to lift the veil of the God of self feels a little bit scary. It feels a little bit intimidating because this God is really ugly. This God is really ugly. All of us have wounds because of him, but here's what's also more scary about him. He's alive and well inside of every one of us. But what's fascinating about self-worship isn't the fact that it's showing up in certain ways in our present time, because it almost feels like we're living in a unique day. But the reality is if you look much longer down the line of history, self-worship has been an always problem. Self-worship is as old as the Garden of Eden. It started in the, it's what the first sin was all about, right? The, The tempter comes and says, hey, did God really say, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this tree? You know, if you do, that you could actually be like God, defining and understanding your own standards, knowing good from evil, right? You could be like God. The temptation to be God or a God unto yourself has been the earliest temptation, the earliest, the earliest thing thrown at us to influence us from the beginning. And so here's what's interesting about all this. When you decide to have no king, No one's going to rule over me. No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to define myself. I'm going to define my own path of life. When you decide that you have no king, who becomes king? You do. It's not that we we, we somehow become a kingless people. We are people who are designed to be kinged. But when we decide that no one can be king over us, well, then we become king. We sit on the throne of our hearts. We sit on the throne of our lives. And this is the way it's always been. So this is the passage I read, Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here's what's so fascinating about that passage. It says, in those days, as though it was a then problem. And you find out through the narrative of scripture, oh, that sounds like right now. That sounds like right now. Everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes, right? This is the God of self. And so here's, here's our framework today. I want to ask and try to tackle three questions. How did we get here? Like what happened? How did we get here? How is it showing up? Not just sort of in the, in the line of history or in the line of, of what's happened across all people in times, but how did we get here in America? How did we get here in Oklahoma? How did we get here? The second question is where does this God show up? Where do we see artifacts of worship to this God? And what's the fruit of it? What, what, is, what has it done to us? And the last question is, what does Jesus say? Like, like, how does he come at us? What does he say against all of this? So that's the, the framework. How did we get here? Where does this show up? And then what does Jesus have to say? So the first one, how did we get here? Okay, so it's true, right? We, we've acknowledged this. There's been a sense of self-worship from the beginning of time. 
present all human history across all times and all places, but it's also true that we're, also, we're able to point out in history, specifically for us as Americans, about where there's been moments that have played a significant role in changing our mindset and changing um, the way we think about culture and setting a new course. There's been moments like this. And so historians and psychologists, I read this week, this was fascinating, I read this week, this, the historians and psychologists have noted that there was a, a shift in Western thought post-World War II. World War II was a, was a moment, it's hard to really talk about all the ways that affect our culture because it affected it in so many ways. But specifically in the way that after World War II, people answered the questions of why am I here? Who am I? And what's the meaning of life? What's meaning in general? After World War II, there was a massive shift in thought in our culture. And here's why. Because when our institutional structures were shaken, when our financial prosperity was shaken, and when our systemic safety was called into question, what happened was before that, we were a collective society. We are Americans. This is who we are. This is what we do. We gain our identity by uh, living, in, living together in community with one another. After that, when all that stuff is shaken, the emphasis began placed on the individual. It's up to you to overcome. It's up to you to persevere. It's up to you to survive and to triumph. So what ended up happening is the leaders and institutions that we once trusted prior to that moment, there's a seismic shift and you can see it playing out where there's all the more protests, all the more controversies and all the more distrust in leaders and institutions and all the more than focus on people, individuals to overcome for themselves. And so you can trace this. And we know this because there's a massive multi-million dollar self-help industry that was birthed out of the ashes of all of this. Self-help and that whole ideology started in the mid-50s and early 60s. It was the whole idea that because of this, because of this effect, now we're going to focus on the individual to make sure that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And what's crazy is, amidst all the trends, amidst all the things that come and go through decades, this has been one ideology and one air we breathe that has remained the same across time since, since the early 1960s, the self-help movement. This is the air we breathe today. Think about this. When you grew up, and even now as you're in, in this world that we live in, sharing things with one another, think about how often you hear things like this. You need to just go find yourself. You need to go discover who it is that you really are. Go find yourself. Go discover who you are. Don't let anyone else define you. You determine the path for your life. You determine the path and you choose the path that makes you happiest. How often do you hear things like this? How often does that ideology show up? And so there's this hyper focus, this intense focus on the self. And here's what's underlying all of all that. It's the idea that you, you possess in and of yourself the greatest resources that you need to unlock life's biggest questions, things like purpose and meaning, identity and truth. But here's what's crazy. That sounds well and good. That sounds nice. That sounds warm. But this is exactly why our culture and many people in this room are so anxious and fearful because we know that we're, though we're being told that all the resources to discover meaning and purpose and truth are within me, I can't seem to find it. I'm still broken and busted. And now I'm scared because I was told I could do something and I'm finding it very difficult to get a wrap on all these things. I'm finding it difficult to button down all the hatches. So here's the, here's the hard reality of this though. You can trace this historically. You can trace this culturally. But when you move it down and just put it into our laps, like the individuals in this room, your life and mine, you get outside of history, get outside of culture and just throw it in your own lap, it's really easy to see and it's almost understandable why we are so focused. Here's what I mean. Every one of us in the room today, every one of us in the room have stories 
of people who have hurt you, people that you've trusted, people that you've respected who've hurt you, people that you look to for guidance and direction, and they maybe betrayed you, they lied to you, they disappointed you, they let you down. Every one of us have stories like that. Every one of us have stories where you're in relationships or you're in moments where people were putting on you intense expectations, intense, um, uh, intense requirements to become a certain kind of person, to look a certain way, to have your life built out a certain way. And because of fear of rejection, you adhered to those pressures. You adhered to those expectations. And then it left you wounded, banged up, and bitter. And so what's the response to that? Is the response to being hurt and lied to and betrayed? Is the response to being formed into a certain image to then further engage with more people and more friends and more community? No, the response is to recoil, isn't it? The response is to then, I don't need people. I'm gonna only gather around me certain people that I think I can trust, maybe not fully, but I think I can trust more than other people. I'm gonna gather them around me. I'm gonna look inside and I'm gonna define my own life because I can't trust them around me. And so it's, it's interesting, right? Like on the one hand, you see it historically, you see it culturally, you drop it in our lap and you go, it's kind of understandable. And that's what makes this so hard. That's what makes this so hard. Because even while it's understandable why we are where we are, here's what I want to challenge you with this today. It's not reasonable. Even though it's understandable, it's not reasonable. And, And here's what I mean. Let's look now. Here's how we got here. What are the fruits of this? What has what the God of self done for us? Where do we see him showing up? And the most, the most easy sort of recognizable evidence of self-worship in our culture is that now sexuality has become totally fluid. Like that's the easiest way to kind of, we got, I got a few observations, but that's the first one I throw out. Sexuality has become totally fluid. And so even though we keep trying to glorify sexuality, hey, there's no boundaries, there's no limits, there's no particular design. Just go out and make for yourself a better life and do it your way. And we keep telling ourselves this, hoping the shame will eventually go away, but it's still there. We keep telling more hero stories of courage, of people kind of doing it their way, hoping that sometime with maybe more hero stories, we're just going to get more comfortable. But the reality is, as a society, we're more confused. We're more confused than we've ever been. There are stories of abandonment and depression all over the place left in the wake. And family structures are being torn apart all the time. And so the fruit of self-defined sexuality, I mean, all of us, all of us are prey to this. The fruit of this has not left us more peaceful and it's not made us more whole. But the second one, right? The gospel of the gospel of happiness. God of self loves to give you a gospel of happiness. That your greatest good is just doing whatever makes you the most happy. The highest, the, the, the highest goal in our culture, how often do you hear things like this? I'm just so glad that you're happy now. I, I just want you to be happy. You should just do whatever makes you happy. Think about that. You hear that all the time. I noticed this tweet this week from Kanye West. It'll be on the screens. This post on Twitter. This was literally just April 18th. Don't follow crowds. Follow the innate feelings inside of you. Do what you feel, not what you think. Thoughts have been placed in our heads to make everyone assimilate. Follow what you feel. Kanye West. Everyone can go, yeah, Kanye West is crazy. I'm not gonna do that. And you go, wait a second. I do that. I think that. I buy that. He's, he's a prophet of the gospel of happiness. But think just for a second. If you actually followed out that logic for 10 minutes, your life would be completely wrecked out. 
relationships compromised, things precious to you ruined. Because very often what you have is desires inside of you are competing with others' desires inside of you. So which desire gets to win? And you have this war inside of you, right? I desire lust. Well, I desire faithful relationships. Ah, what do I do? Where, where do I go? How do I make this work? And so listen, I just want you to be happy. The gospel of happiness hasn't delivered to us. It hasn't delivered because it's not just outside the church. It's also inside the church. Everybody is doing just about anything they want to do. We are indulging ourselves on every front. Yet, here's what's the result. We're anxious like crazy. We're fearful and we're wrecked out with insecurities. But I thought we we're supposed to be happy. I thought doing what you wanted, what you felt was supposed to make you happy. Why am I so anxious? Why am I so fearful? Why am I so insecure? It hasn't delivered. We are indulging ourselves to death. And so often we still buy the lie that maybe one more fix of my next best idea to meet the depth of my needs for happiness will make it work, despite the fact that the thousands of others I've tried haven't worked. Next one it leads to is a culture, a society of relativism. So this means what works for you works for you. What works for me works for me. My path is my path. Your path is your path. Let's just get used to the fact that we're all going to travel different paths. Isn't that beautiful that we're so diverse and we can do all this? Let's just learn to coexist. The only sin of our culture is intolerance. The only sin of our culture is intolerance. When, when, when my way starts to bother you and fringe upon you, well, then, then you've got the problem, not me, Right? So the promise of the relativism of our culture claims that we'll just be a more loving society. If we can just get used to this, we'll actually start to love one another and we'll be more unified. But the problem is when you come to your own conclusion of truth and you start to believe that increasingly and that opposes with someone else's conclusion of truth, you start believing that they need to adopt your conclusion of truth. And now what we're having with all these rising movements that are contradictory is everyone's just yelling that their truth needs to win the day. So it hasn't made us more unified. It's actually made us more torn apart. You see, the reality is with relativism, it sounds nice. Your truth is yours. My truth is mine. The problem is we don't want that. We want absolute truth just so long as we're the ones who define it. Right? You really don't want a relative world. You want an absolute world where there's absolute right and absolute wrong. The problem is you're the one who wants to define that. Thus we argue. The gospel of relativism hasn't brought us together. It's actually torn us apart. And maybe just one more example, because it sounds like all this is happening out there in the world. But what's scary is we're out there too. And then we bring the world in with us inside the church. We drink this just as much as anyone else. We breathe this just as much as anyone else. Here's where I notice this happening in the church. The most dominant way. Have you ever heard something like this? When I think of God, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. I could never believe in a God who would fill in the blank, right? I like to think of God as, or I could never believe in a God who would. And without saying it, when we say things like this, we're trying to set boundaries for what God can do and what God cannot do who God can be and who God can't be. We're trying to edit him. We're trying to crop him. We're trying to create a nice, neat little God that can fit into our lives that we can control. What we want is a God who won't embarrass us at happy hour, a God who won't embarrass us in front of our friends or our coworkers. We, we want a God who, 
is safe and fun and therapeutic, a God who's there for us all the time, but never actually confronts us. He's safe, he's fun, he's therapeutic. He gives me laughs, but he never bothers me. He never confronts me. He never comes back at me. He just supports me and blesses me. He's like a cosmic bellboy or lucky rabbit's foot that just gives me all the things I want, right? That's what we want. We want a God who will never leave us to make us feel comfortable We also want a God who will never challenge us with his authority. In the end, when you say things like that, what you want is to be God and you want another God to serve you. Another God to serve you. And so the danger when the God of self creeps into the church, here's what's dangerous about this. It's not that any one of us in here when we fall prey to this, it's not that you want to get rid of God altogether because you don't. The danger is that you end up with a God that you think that you like and it's more manageable, but in the end, it's not the God of the Bible at all. It's just a God of your own making, of my own making, right? It's just a God that we've imagined, and we go, I feel best about this God. That's who I'll sing to. That's who I'll imagine when I sing, when I pray, when I read scripture. I'll edit out the parts I don't like. I'll take in the parts that I do that fit with my program, and then that's the God I'll worship. Okay, so this is where we are. Like, this is where we are. This is how we got here. These are the false promises of the God of self. And this haunts every one of us. We live in a world where we give ourselves over to this worship far more than we want. And so with all the things we just outlined, we're not more free. We're not more satisfied. We're not more united. And we're not more at peace with God. At best, at best, as we followed the God of self, at best, We've just become really good at playing games and convincing ourselves and everyone else that we're okay at best. At worst, at worst in our following of the God of self, we're dying on the inside. We're suffering from loneliness and shallow relationships. And we're afraid of the future because the foundations that we've believed in to hold us up, we know we can't trust in because we're the ones who built them. And so we're scared of the future. That's that's worst. And I think that's probably what's most true. And so the God of self, massive promises, massively over-promising with absolutely no ability to deliver. This is Proverbs 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right to man. There's a way that seems so right, so harmless, so obvious, so easy, so comfortable, so convenient. There's a way that seems right to us. Why could this be wrong? It feels so right. There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end, we've just outlined it. It doesn't deliver. In the end, it leads to death. So here's where we're going to end today. So what about Jesus? (laughs) Like, where is he in all this? How does he show up in the midst of all this? What does he have to say? So the whole reason, the whole reason that God sent his son was to confront our foolish, misplaced worship. We were never designed. You and I were never designed to rule over ourselves. That's what's got us in the whole mess in the first place. We were never designed for this. But notice the heart of Jesus. This is John 3, 17. I love this verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do you hear that? Like that just kind of tears down so many horrible preconceived ideas about Jesus and the heart of God being some judge, some cosmic ZZ top father in the sky waiting to just yell at everybody, hey, kids, get off my lawn. That's not who he is. He's saying he did not send his son to condemn the world. He didn't do that. 
He sent his son that the world might be saved through him. There's no doubt that God has sent his son to confront us. Jesus absolutely confronts us. Listen, you have to be confronted if you're ever gonna be saved. Confrontation isn't a bad thing. Confrontation rescues you from certain destruction. So Jesus was sent to confront us, to call us forward, but not to condemn us, to save us. And so now I want us to be clear. Like, so what is the call of Jesus? What is the call of Jesus? Because following him does cost. Like we like to make Jesus out to be super loving, super accepting, super soft, not coming at us. But when we look at the voice of Jesus, it's not like that. Jesus following him is not just adding him to the areas of your life that seem to fit, to be the most comfortable, to secure you when you're most afraid. No, following Jesus means literally you let go of everything else but him. You let go of everything else but him. You move all your chips to the center of the table and you say, whatever you say goes. Following Jesus is pushing your chips all the way to the center of the table. Listen to the way Jesus says it in Luke 9 and we'll be done. This is, a, this is a verse, if you've spent time in church, you're likely gonna be familiar with, but listen to it fresh today and listen to how challenging this is. He said to all, so he doesn't discriminate, he doesn't profile, he doesn't exclude, he says to all, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself, Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and then lose or forfeit yourself? So Jesus, he speaks so plainly in this passage. Like it hardly needs any explanation. But the first thing he says is the true way to find yourself is to actually look away from yourself to find yourself. What, what everyone is telling us we need to do, right, is not look more inside of yourself. What Jesus is saying here is you've got to deny yourself, which means you look away from yourself. If you want to know who you are, what's most inside of you, what you're designed for, where you're gifted, look away from yourself. So counterintuitive. He's talking about denying yourself, not in the way we talk about diets and portion control. Like I'm not going to let myself have certain things, but I will other things. No, he's talking about denying himself in the kind of way where you look away from yourself and have another authority. You actually say, I have another authority. This is what it means to call Jesus Lord. He sets the agenda. So the first thing he says here is look away from yourself. The second thing he says is lay down your life and follow me. And this is where it gets hard. Lay down your life and follow me. Now he's not talking about your physical life. He's not talking about that. When he says you've got to lose your life, the word he uses there is the word for psyche. It's the Greek word for psyche. So your inner life, your thinking life, your mindset, how you see the world. When Jesus says you've got to lose your life, he's saying the identity that you think you have, the way you've related to yourself, your old way of getting a sense of worth and self, that has to be over. Like that has to die. If you're going to follow me, the way you've gained a sense of self and worth, that has to die. Take up your cross, lose your life, lose your old way of seeing, lose your old way of living. Look at me and I'll give you a whole new identity. I'll give you a whole new self. I'll give you a whole new way of seeing the world and living. Now, I don't know how you hear that. But as I kind of look at that this week, as I studied this, and I'm thinking about this for my own self, on the one hand, hearing Jesus say that, is so encouraging, right? 
Jesus actually wants me to come after him. He wants to be near me. He wants to give me a new way of seeing, a a freer way of seeing, a new self, a new identity, a new definition. That's encouraging, but it's also a little bit offensive on some level. Jesus is saying the way you've operated, the way you've judged life, that's got to go. Your MO and your judgments about how you've done it in and of yourself have to be offloaded, not just kept around and adding my furniture on top of your existing furniture. That makes for a crowded house, doesn't it? It doesn't work. You've got to move out the old furniture, sell it, and then, and then move mine in. Move my judgments, move my authority, have my arrangement about your life. That seems a bit offensive. But when Jesus says this, and here's where we finish, he's not trying to offend you. When Jesus confronts the God of self, he's not trying to offend you. He says it this way because Jesus, a savior, the true God, the true king, he actually sees sober and he's trying to shake us awake from our own destruction and give us something better than we could ever give ourselves. C.S. Lewis has this great quote about, about what Jesus is saying here. He says, the real you, your real and new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. As long as you look for yourself, you won't find it. He says, it will come when you start looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds. You know, far more, uh, for far more everyday matters, even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. The principle runs through from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes and every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look away from yourself and you will find in the long run, or sorry, look to yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And then with him, everything else will be thrown in. So counterintuitive, so against the gospel of this age, look away from yourself, find him. And then with him, everything else will be thrown in. So these words of Jesus, they go against the grain of what's normal to us. They go against the grain of what's instinctive to us. If we're going to do this, we need new reflexes. And to do that, What's beautiful is when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and to take up a cross, he was doing something if he knew exactly what he was talking about because he himself took up a cross, not his own. He himself bore a defeat, not his own. He himself took on everything that we deserved and the games that we've played and the ways that we've propped ourselves up in God's face against his authority. So here's what's so beautiful about the cross of Jesus It says that God is so committed to justice. God's so committed to it that sin can't be overlooked. But he's also so committed to love that the cost for the justice would be one he would incur on himself. He would take on himself that you and I might go free. The cross is so beautiful that way. So here's what I know about Jesus and the way this works is that he's a God who can actually be trusted because he took on himself the own words he gave to us. And he showed us the way, he took the example, and he also paid the price. And so when you think about knocking over the throne of your own self-God and stepping into Jesus, here's what I do know. A trillion years from now, when you stand in front of Jesus, no one in this room is going to wish they had followed their own desires more. 
No one in this room, when you stand in front of Jesus, when you're there face to face with the one that you have by faith read his word, sung songs to him, prayed prayers, built your life on him, when you stand in front of him face to face, not one of us in this room will wish we had obeyed him less. Not one of us will wish that he had owned us less, that we had given him less authority. In fact, if it were possible, if it were possible to have any regret in his face, the only regret we have would say, I wish I had started so much earlier giving you authority. I wish I had started so much earlier dethroning myself. I wish I had started so much earlier letting you own me. I'm a terrible king, but you rose from the dead. You see, the God of self, and here's where we end, the God of self cannot live in the face of the one who defeated death. It can't live. It can't live.